0: This is Trepwire Week in Review for April 24th. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with our own experts, Manus Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance. This week, some markets are entertaining the idea of reopening. Oil prices recovered some ground after a crazy drop earlier in the week, and Congress passed another relief bill to help small businesses, hospitals, and testing. And our overall unemployment numbers have hit 26 million. All this volatility is having an impact. How is it rippling through the markets that we track?
1: Well, what we've seen is ongoing volatility. We saw a couple of rocky days in the equity markets, especially when oil was selling off. Uh, As we know, spot oil for West Texas crude went negative for the May contract. What that means is that when the contract was expiring, traders did not want to be stuck with having to receive oil, they're not in the business of receiving oil. And to shed these contracts, they actually had to pay people up to $40 a barrel to take the contracts off their hands. We joked at the office that it's a shame we couldn't fill our swimming pools or our bathtubs with barrels of oil to take advantage of that. Uh, But in our tip of the week, of course, which we started last week, people should talk to their oil companies this week and start trying to line up oil deliveries to tap off their tanks at the end of the winter. It probably won't get much cheaper than it is now. Um, We did see oil in Europe fall down to about $13 a barrel. Here in the U.S., the June contract is at about $13 a barrel as well, which is about a third of what domestic U.S. oil producers need, shale producers, to break even. And what this means is that we'll probably see a hastening in the demise of oil producers, shale producers here in the U.S. that will decimate some economies in North Dakota, West Texas, it will, lead to more energy company defaults, which will weigh on the CLO markets. And it will weigh on CMBS to the extent that oil companies are tenants in offices
2: around the country. Yeah, we did the oil and gas exposure a couple weeks ago, even before uh, they were paying you to take barrels of oil. Um, and we also did that back in 2016, right? When the price of oil dropped precipitously and the, we had a little bit of a mini uh, not even a recession, but a mini correction in the markets, which was pretty short lived. Um, but my biggest news of the week is that Tiger and Phil are going to be playing each other. Uh, was that in May or June? That's like, that is huge. I cannot wait to watch that. I, I just hope that it's more, it's a lot more trash talking than last time. They were a little too nice to each other the last time around.
1: I had heard something different. I heard that they were playing with partners and that Peyton Manning and Tony Romo or Tom, yes, Brady, Tom Brady were going yeah. to be paired with them. So uh, something for everybody, something for the football fan, something for the golf fan. Uh, it's something to look forward to for sure. But going back to the oil issue. <laughs> <laughs> not to take us off track. Not to take us off track. We also have the NFL draft tonight, so we could see how the Giants and Jets messed that up. as they tend to do uh, frequently over the last decade. Uh, But aside from that, you know, one more piece of information on oil. There's now 250 million barrels of oil out to sea, uh, just waiting to be delivered and more oil forthcoming from the Middle East, which now people are looking for whether they can dump it or redirect it to Europe or other places in the world, South America, to offload some of the pressure in the US. But what we talked about a couple of years ago, Joe, you you reminded me of what we did in 2016, is that there is a correlation between corporate debt, leveraged loans, and the CMBS market. And when you see credit blowout, when you see double B's and triple B's blowout in the energy sector, there's a gravitational pull that pulls spreads wider everywhere. And if those credits are widening by hundreds of basis points a day, in anticipation of defaults, what we saw in 2016 and what we will inevitably see here is more widening of credit in the U.S. uh, as the ripple effect drags across. If credit is dragging wider in energy, it will pull everything wider with it.
2: Yeah, we were, uh, after last week, we did a, a quick analysis, a quick and dirty analysis on one of the CMBX uh, indices, CMBX eight it was, which is the 2014 vintage and know, Manus, you put together some kind of intrinsic value work on that, and then I was looking at um, kind of what the break evens were uh, based on I think the the spreads on the triple B and the double B CMBX eight tranches were up three hundred and fifty percent or so year to date, and we ran a bunch of different severe scenarios. And the protection seller, meaning the guy who's long CMBX or long CMBS, doesn't think losses are going to be that high, would win uh, even in the most severe cases at the triple B level. They were only win by maybe one percent annualized yield, so not that much. But you know, the moral of that story was either the either the market is jittery and panicked, and they've priced in too much risk, or we can't even fathom the risk that's going to occur or the level of losses and the speed of losses that are going to occur. I tend to think that the market's a little wide, um, but I also talked to somebody else in the industry who was mentioning that you know, there were a lot of paper profits the last time around, who, people who took the long position in CMBX after spreads had blown out. and But when they tried to uh, turn those paper profits into real profits, the market kind of reset because you know, once they tried to liquidate their holdings, the, the level wasn't where uh, they thought it was, you know? So the, the market wasn't as liquid in order to be able to actually take those gains.
1: Speaking of paper, paper profits, you know, let's talk for one minute about Carl Icahn and how lucky he has been, <laughs> right? He jumped in with this $5 billion trade, right? With the thesis that retail was going to crush everybody, and his shorts, shorting CMBX six triple B BBB- minus, was going to be profitable solely on the basis of retails, retail, you know, shopping malls and so forth, hitting the skids, and now with COVID that has extended to lodging, multifamily, and other sectors. This is like Carl Icahn walking into a flea market, buying a four dollar painting and finding a copy of the constitution behind it, right? <laughs> but that's going to happen. You hope that happens to a truck driver. This is like it not happening to a truck driver. It's like it happened to Jeff Bezos, <laughs> right? In Carl Icahn's case. I mean, it is just uh, serendipity to the 10th degree. He's got good timing, that
2: guy.
0: Yes. Well, he's also, you guy- know, he
2: was he was probably, you know, he wasn't betting on the fact that CMBX spreads would widen. He was betting on the losses will occur and I'll get paid back for the losses and that's how I'll make my money. So he's getting the capital. I mean, it's not really capital appreciation, but he's getting the capital appreciation that he didn't even expect. Right. You know, it's, This is it's like just, LeBron
1: winning a, a $30 million scratch-off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. There's something to be said for luck. That's right. Looking at CMBS loans this week, Fitch came out with a report that said that 5,000 borrowers had requested relief to the tune of about $100 billion. What do we make of that?
1: Well, there's a couple of things to make of that. $100 billion would represent close to 20% of the market, uh, the CMBS market. And it is in line with another headline they made, which they said, you know, we could see 19 or 20% delinquency in CMBS, which would be about double what we saw at the peak of the financial crisis. We put out a delinquency number every month around the first of the month. And our peak came in 2012, I believe, when the remnants of the financial crisis uh, pushed delinquencies up to 10.34%. So this would be double that number. And the amount of damage that that would would, uh, create would really be amazing. You know, back then we talked about this in prior podcasts. It was a wall street problem. It was a borrower problem. We saw some big borrowers um, face real liquidity issues, Harry Mackle being one of them. And it was a subprime borrower problem. It was also, you know, a problem for those that had gone long and short uh, ABX, you know, short, primarily AIG and others. But what we're seeing right now is just carnage to people who had, spent their life's work building up, you know, maybe a small portfolio of 10 roadside hotels, which for the last 20 years had done extremely well, or at least uh, had been profitable. Uh, This will extend to people that had built small portfolios of student housing loans. So this is not gonna be Harry Macklow who blows up, although people like him could blow up again. This is gonna be uh, people who had, you know, the moms and pops of commercial real estate who had had created small portfolios and um, had run a couple of, you know, small businesses.
2: Yeah. I mean, Fitch, that Fitch report, um, they get access even earlier than we do to some of that information. But I know that we are tracking extensively um, the new servicer standards of how they're reporting COVID-related forbearance requests. Uh, it's in the wash list codes. It's in the special servicing codes, and it's in the wash list commentary. So, a lot of the uh, codes have not been updated yet in uh, April. They probably will be in May, but there are a ton of servicer comments out there. We were seeing upwards of a thousand that mentioned COVID, and that's probably not even the you know total amount that are actually asking for help. That's probably just the total amount that the servicers were able to process. Uh, this month. So uh, that's another question on on the servicing side is (laughs) when these forbearances happen, and we've talked about this before, I mean, do the servicers have enough capital to advance for 25% of the market? You know, like I don't know how that that really works itself out in the long run.
1: Well, I, I do think they have enough capital to do it, but if they're using all of their capital to advance, Right. It takes money out of their pocket to kickstart the economy in other ways, right, to lend to other businesses and so forth. And that's something that could really uh, crimp any kind of recovery. If banks are using some of their capital for purposes that are not traditional lending, Uh, it ties up things that, um, you know, could grease the economy on the way back up. Right. But going back to your point, Joe, about the data, you know, in some ways, this is the Y2K. Of data for this market, and what that by that I mean you know right before the turn of the century, everybody was looking at their computer code to try to figure out what could go wrong when we flipped from 1999 to two thousand what we 're facing right now is everybody had systems in place to look for delinquent loans, to look for watchlist commentary um, to look for special servicer notes, and so forth and Vendors like us and others, uh, hedge funds, um, people with you know, money managers, insurance companies, all had processes in place to look for these things. And what we're finding now is that things are gonna change over the next 30 days, special servicer codes, uh, watch list codes, other data points that people will want to know um, how they are changing in real time very quickly. Um, we've had some very positive calls, productive calls with parts of the industry rallying around new standards. And I think people will adopt them very quickly. But for people that have spent the last 15 years looking at data a certain way, um, you don't want to be caught with your pants down, not knowing what these new terms are, um, while your competitors know exactly what they are and where distressed assets are residing or
2: where problems are bubbling up. I just saw an email about 10 minutes ago from Fannie Mae. And I know I always bring up Fannie Mae because in the CRE land, that's where we have a ton of our data from multifamily. Uh, apparently they're circulating a list of all of the loans and properties that have uh, either requested forbearance or they've approved forbearance. So, you know, I sent an email to our guys saying, get on this right away to make sure that we're we're showing all our clients where you know, the potential distress is, uh, because coming out of that forbearance, 90 days or whatever it is, doesn't necessarily mean that the the landlord or the owner's still not in trouble, you know? So, but anyway.
1: I have a client that uh, 14 years later has still never forgiven me for something that I did to them back in 2006, which was I was touting how good the, the Fannie Mae data was and how useful it was to see certain trends And I told him that he should go to their website and look at that particular data. And unfortunately I told him to go to fanny.com, which was a website of ill repute and he took my advice and he was on the trading floor of a now defunct investment bank when all of these inappropriate images started coming up and he was afraid that he was going to get fired based on my bad advice. So he's now at a different investment bank. And if he's listening, you might get a chuckle out of this, but don't go to Fanny.com. Look up the appropriate website if you go look for some of their uh, research or data.
0: You know, you I just brought re- their server down with that comment. I don't <laughs> want uh,
1: Joe to repeat the, uh, the bad advice that I gave some poor soul. He was 24 at the time and really thought uh, he was going to have to move back in with his parents.
0: <laughs> Looking at commercial real estate, in addition to lodging, retail is getting hit hard Uh, with department stores, shopping malls bearing the brunt of the shutdown. And we've written a lot about this recently in Tripwire. A number of these are uh, exploring bankruptcy. Can you walk us through what we're seeing there right now?
2: Yeah. And, you know, before we get into the the nitty gritty, I'll just mention that uh, there was a report out from NARIT a day or two ago, which was talking about the uh, share of their uh, owners or commercial real estate owners that were collecting rents. And, you know, healthcare, office, apartment, industrial, all were within reasonable normal ranges in the 90% area, a little, little bit higher, 99% for industrial. Obviously, industrial is doing very well right now. But shopping centers were 46% of their rent was collected. And they also mentioned that in uh, freestanding retail and uh, mall, they didn't even publish the numbers. I, I, maybe they're worried about publishing those numbers, but they said they were even lower than that. So, you know, just from the, the commercial real estate aspect, there's some serious um, pain still to flow through. But obviously our data we've talked about is already showing that, right? With about 10% of retail loans not having made their payment this month. Yeah, we
1: have two immediate concerns right now among others, we probably have 30 immediate concerns, but two that we'll talk about today. Uh, one was that this morning, the Gap came out and said, they were not gonna pay rent any longer on any of their locations. They'd become the latest firm to come out with that uh, statement. The first one that came out was the Cheesecake Factory. And, and And since then, we've seen many others like that. So the list continues to grow of firms that making that statement and will pursue that matter. Uh, In addition, we saw rumors, uh, news articles, headlines of three different major retailers that could be facing bankruptcy in the near term. Those would be Lord & Taylor, JC Penney, and Neiman Marcus were all the subject of many headlines over the last couple days speculating. And I want to underscore that word speculating that they could be facing bankruptcy. We have seen nothing uh, formal on any, on any case, and we certainly don't want to uh, trigger a demise by, by using that word, but it certainly is out there, and they operate a lot of stores in shopping malls, and if that were to come to pass, what normally happens is the rejection of leases in bankruptcy. Uh, we've seen that from Sears um, and others over time, and that would be another anchor uh, on the mall owners as they see their major anchors and major uh, tenants continue to struggle.
2: So we said uh, during this week that maybe we should transition all these big box stores to oil storage facilities.
1: There you go. <laughs> you just have to be able to refine it.
2: We don't need to, we just got to hold it for like six months and then when the price of the barrels back to 20 or 30 bucks, you know, you paid me 30 to hold it and I'll sell it back to you for 30 bucks. Make That's a $60 right. swing there. I think we're going to see a lot of new things emerge that had never been considered
1: before. I was saying earlier this week that we may see the return of the 1920s and 30s speakeasy. Oh, right. yeah. the, the, uh, you knock three times on the door, uh, a small window opens and uh, <laughs> you give the password and, and they let you in. Yeah. Um, sign us up.
0: In, uh, in Multi-Family, our loyal listeners will remember that we predicted that, that there's gonna be some student housing challenges, and we're starting to see that come to pass with students looking to walk away from, uh, from leases, especially as it pertains to their off-campus housing. Where do you see this going?
1: Well, there's an interesting piece in the news, maybe it's not the first one, it's the first one I happen to notice, where a US representative down in Florida was urging property owners near the university, uh, Florida State University to grant the students waivers so that they can cancel their leases now uh, early and not pay the lessee or or I should say the property owner rent uh, through the end of their lease. And I do have very mixed feelings about that uh, from an editorial point of view You know, personally, leases for student housing run from July to July. When you go in and you say, I'm going to pay my $450 a a month or $700 a month, whatever it is, you know, you're in it for 12 months. It's part of the calculus. It's part of what they charge you for. If you vacated Florida State University at the end of March and your last month of in-class activity was canceled, I have mixed opinions about whether you should get a windfall, if you should be able to cancel your lease, not pay four months of uh, tenant payments, especially if you yourself still have a job or as a parent paying that uh, freight still have a job. I think that those of us that have jobs and can pay their obligations should continue to do so. Uh, I think it will help these property owners stay afloat um, if, if everybody chooses to not pay their freight, property owners default, um, properties go into foreclosure to become eyesores on campus. It becomes harder for them to be rehabilitated over time. And, you know, I, I, think it's a moral issue that those of us that can meet our obligation should Martha, you, you know, you have, uh, kids that have gone through the process that are in the process. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I have mixed feelings about it. We were on campus. So we did get money back from the school. Um, And for students who are putting themselves through school with loans. This could be yet another hit. But uh, for parents or someone who is helping fund uh, an apartment, they they should pay if they can. So it's a contract and you should honor the contract.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean the, whole, the whole economy right now is having these conversations, right? Not just about student housing, but about everything. It goes from the tenant, right? Not getting customers to come into their store, and then the tenant asking the, the owner for some rent abatement, then the owner asking the bank for some forbearance, and also potentially asking the property tax assessor you know, I can't pay right now. I need three months. So it's almost like this wave of uh, liability forgiveness that I don't know where it ends. But I also I don't know. Like it's never been done before. If every single liability was frozen for ninety days, I don't know what would happen. I mean, well, the whole thing collapse, or would we just sit in our houses on our couches for ninety days and then come back to normal? I don't know.
1: Well, let's not forget that a significant portion of real estate and alternative investments. Are held by pension funds, right? Right. Ultimately, that pension fund money goes to retirees, right? So, and some of those retirees could be people that are paying student loan, housing costs, right? There's this. It's a It's not a virtuous circle. It's a right. disvirtuous circle, <laughs> where, in some ways, if enough people at the bottom rung of the uh, food chain stop spending. It could come back to to bite those same people on the other end through defaults at state and local levels on pension fund obligations. so it is a very complex issue. Um, for me personally, I think that it's you know nobody should ever pay their rent if it means starving, mm-hmm. right But I do think that, and we said this last week, and I hate to be a broken record, but if you have the means to meet your obligations whatever they may be, and everybody has a different pain point, you should do what you can to keep this economy going.
2: Yeah, yeah. My wife certainly is with her uh, online grocery shopping (laughs) orders lately. They have been astronomical. Well, uh, maybe, I don't even know if she's a listener, but if she is, I'm sorry for saying that.
1: Well, I would say (laughs) this, that we could find out tomorrow that an asteroid is going to wipe out the planet in six days, we'll still be getting Amazon deliveries in five days.
2: <laughs> God bless them.
0: God bless Amazon. A couple of weeks ago, we talked God about bless TALF. Our kids. That too, um, TALF, the the term asset backed securities loan facility. It's one of the Fed's backstop relief programs, but some of the fastest growing segments were left out of that. So, what do we think that that possibly could impact?
2: Yeah, I so I think the two segments that CREC is pushing for them to include are single asset single borrower deals, CMBS deals, and CRE CLOs. Uh, I like Manus on student housing. I have mixed feelings because generally, SASB, which is the single asset deals, are uh, large loans made to you know trophy asset type properties or very large portfolios like a Blackstone industrial portfolio, you might say. Um, so the sponsors generally are large, institutional, strong, high-quality sponsors, and they probably can afford, um, you know, to keep their debt service payments up and and to keep things going here. And you know, on the CRE CLO side, it depends on what you mean by include. I mean, if if you include them on the secondary market, is different from including them in that the Fed will only purchase them in the primary market, meaning new issuance. I think the primary market would be good because I think a lot of these REITs are uh, struggling a little bit with their with their stock prices and margin calls, and it would be very useful for them to be able to uh, securitize some of the loans on their balance sheet that they were planning to securitize. Um, but in terms of the secondary market, you know, if they if the Fed helps uh, CRE, CLO, you know, discount margins tighten. I don't know. I mean, maybe that helps some people in terms of margin calls and things like that, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure, you know, where it helps. You know, back in 2007,
1: 2008, I don't know if this was formally stated, but I think that the operating notion of intervention was to keep otherwise healthy companies from going under due to lack of liquidity. And if you remember from the big short movie, uh, there came a point, I think it was a big short, but it could have been an HBO movie where GE, who had nothing to do with subprime mortgages and nothing to do with really um, anything to do with the problems that were happening in the market, couldn't tap the commercial paper market, market because of um, credit concerns and liquidity. and. You know, the notion back then was we can't let companies like GE, which were otherwise should be unaffected, go down because of other problems that are um, skipping over to other parts of the market. And I I think the toolkit has to be quite different with the regulators this time around. But the MO, right, the modus operandi should be exactly the same, which is, you don't want an operator of hotels or retail properties or a REIT or somebody else to go down for a reason that is beyond their control and would otherwise never have happened in ordinary times. Right? So there's almost like a, a, a statement of, you know, the bill of rights of the consumer, the taxpayer, the pensioner and the property owner, which should be written up, which says, you know, the government will, will step in to help healthy companies. We will not put the taxpayer at risk to bail out those that should be able to help themselves or those who are going down otherwise, Anyways. right? right. But I do think the, the tools that they use this time will be vastly different and need to be vastly different than they were 12 years ago.
2: It's such a, you know, it's such a slippery slope though, you know, coming from probably two fairly uh, free market type guys, as I think we are to offer government intervention at, at the, I wouldn't say the drop of a hat, but to offer, just to say like, if anything happens that we didn't expect, the government will step in. I mean, this is totally outside the realm of anything anybody ever expected, except for like Bill Gates. If you watch some of those YouTube videos from, on Reddit or wherever where he always said that the biggest risk to mankind is a global pandemic. Um, You know, there's just no way you could have predicted something like this, but you know, what's the next thing that nobody could have predicted and is it a little bit less than a global pandemic, but we still need to, you know, put $2 trillion into the economy from a government perspective. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's a very slippery slope and there's, it's very hard to say where is that cutoff between a company that had good risk management practices, didn't take too much risk, you know, wasn't doing the wrong thing and now they're getting hurt versus the company one rung below them who was maybe taking on a little too much risk and maybe deserved it. You know, like who's the judge, right? If you come up with, once you start judging companies, like you're, you're three steps away from Stalin, you know? We don't do a very good job <laughs> as a nation looking back
1: and holding people accountable for the excesses that they took or for taking advantage of a system when the rules have been loosened a little bit. And you know, I, I don't think this is the best time to be nitpicking, right, I think we do right. need a fire hose of a uh, intervention right now, but it would be a welcome change if when it was done, we went back and recovered assets from those that didn 't really need them, and um, held companies accountable for the receivables that they owed down the road rather than wiping them out if they were capable of making payments right and, and, I, and I do think I hate to moralize, but I do think it it strikes at the moral compass of every business leader in this company of the, in this country, I should say, just as it does every individual in this country, right? If you have the means to pay as an individual, you should pay. And if you have the means to pay as a company, this is no time to be finagling and gaming the system to be taking advantage of something just because you can. And I'd like to see people um, really show their true colors in a time like this and show what they stand for. And I do think that 95% of the people will do the right thing. Um, I, I hope that's true.
0: That's a, that's a people are good message. Turning to CLOs on the corporate side, we wrote a lot this week about downgrades as firms are struggling with the shutdown. How does that play out if this continues?
1: Well, I think that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg, right? We keep talking every week about new things that came up. We said, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was rent-a-car companies, mm-hmm. right? Movie theater operators. We wrote something this week about, um, talking about the interconnectivity between CLOs and CMBS. there was a startup out in San Francisco whose job it was to let individuals or their business model was to let individuals rent their own cars to other people within San Francisco. It turns out that nobody needs that service right now. So the company itself is struggling, but they also happen to be the only tenant at a loan, behind a loan that was securitized just four months ago in a CMBS deal. So it talks about the interconnectivity of it, but I do think the longer this goes on, the more industries you see that are impacted that you never really thought of, you see more downgrades. More downgrades means more triggers being hit in the CLO markets. You know, to get into a little bit of inside baseball, the more bonds that are downgraded from double B and Double B minus to triple C triggers a redirection of cash flow, which means that more cash goes to AAA investors and less goes to AA, single A and to the equity holders as well. So what that means is that for guys that play in that part of the market, the AA, the single A, the equity, you see an interruption of cash flow, which you may not see kicked off again for months or years. So it does have a a very technical part of it. But I also think that if you get to enough delinquencies and defaults, eventually it it rolls up to the manager himself, right? And all of a sudden his holdings don't have the value that they once did. It can trigger margin calls. Margin calls roll up to lenders, which means banks. And all of a sudden you have a contagion that mimics what the CRE CDO market looked like in 2008 and 2009, right? Very, very sloppy,
2: very ugly. Yeah, I mean, I know that manager performance tracking is a huge part of, you know, our CLO product and it uh, be interesting to see just how, you know, which ones fare, fare well, which ones fail. Um, and if there's, you know, a far Gump shrimp boat moment in the CLO market uh, <laughs> six months or a year from now.
1: It's, it'll be interesting to see, right? When we come out of this, I really do think that America has PTSD. Oh, yeah. PTSD about going to restaurants, movies, sporting events, everything. And I do think that uh, it is a very slow and gradual, you know, 14 degree uh, angle. It's not a 45 degree angle. This
2: recovery. It's not V shaped. Yeah. So is it, is it V or W or U or F or A? I feel like I've seen, uh, Lots every almost every letter used to describe this recovery, when nobody actually knows what's actually going to happen.
1: Well, the one that's come out recently, we you know perhaps we we mentioned it in the past. The Nike swoosh, right? right? We fell off like the left side of the Nike image, and uh, or icon, and we're going to come back like this small, slow uh,
2: uptick. That actually brings up a great point that we have to mention. Uh, did you watch the Michael Jordan documentary yet? The first two episodes. I did not. I wish I did. Oh man, you have to. It's so good. I mean, MJ really hasn't come out publicly and done anything since he retired. So to see this is pretty amazing, especially because, I mean, you would enjoy it probably more than I do because I was a kid when I was young when this was happening, but I still remember how awesome the Bulls were back then and how sad it was as a Knicks fan. But, uh, but that's a good one. You have to watch.
1: Yeah. He put a, uh, dagger in, in Nick Hart's over and over and over again.
2: Well, Larry Bird's line the other day was, that wasn't Michael Jordan. That was God disguised as Michael Jordan <laughs> when he put up like 69 <laughs> points in Boston right. as a rookie. That's right.
0: Well, the, the recovery clearly is not going to happen instantly. So do you have any predictions of what we can see as some new norms in the next few months?
1: The norm I would love to see come back would be playoff hockey right now we would be you know really in the teeth of it we'd be seeing some game sevens I like to talk about uh, hockey in the office or on the water cooler there used to be a CRE if you could believe it or not pickup game that would take place in Long Island City some of our trip guys would go out there and play and that's the part that I really miss And I always go back to what could I do as an individual to help this economy back? I know I can't make ventilators, right? I can't even put together a Nerf hoop, right? But when they talk about starting sports again, they also say, well, how are you gonna put those guys at risk that are the camera guys, the medical guys, right?
2: The- The popcorn guy. The
1: popcorn guy, how do you do that? And, And, you know, if I'm gonna, put myself in the crosshairs, make me that guy, right? I'll tape the sticks. I'll film the game. I'll take the still shots for the newspapers. I'll write it up for the next day's paper. I'll do the play by play. I'll do the color, right? I'll sing the American Anthem and the Canadian Anthem, right? I'm gonna, I'll do anything with the dental work. If a guy gets his teeth knocked out, I'm not doing the dental work, right? But anything else to get playoff hockey back on TV, I'm in.
2: Well, thank you for your sacrifice, Manus. That's, That's right. very valiant of you. Keep your service. Uh, I had one note that I wanted to mention, which is not really CRE related, but one of the scary things about the market right now is the fact that Warren Buffett has not made some massive acquisition yet. The fact that the market is as, well, I don't know if it's relatively cheap, but relative to three months ago, it's cheap. And Buffett is still not made some sort of massive elephant size acquisition. And especially with oil prices where they are, you know, it wouldn't be surprised if Buffett comes out and buys ExxonMobil or some massive <laughs> uh, acquisition at some point. And if he doesn't, that's more of a reason, that's more of a reason to be a little bit worried, right? right? Cause that means that he doesn't, he doesn't see the recovery happening yet. He did sell but, his airline. Um, holdings, smart. Not, not too long ago. So a few weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Right, that so was very scary.
1: He's a little rattled, I have to say. Um, yeah. But going back to my my previous comment, let me not uh, fail to say this. It, it's one thing to joke about playoff hockey and serving in some kind of silly capacity, but uh, a huge shout out to anybody who's working in grocery stores, keeping our economy going, doctors, nurses, anybody who has tested positive for the antibody, who is donating plasma, police, fire, anybody who's... Still showing up for the job, knowing that uh, there is that potential for bringing the virus back to their family. Uh, I can't say enough for everything you're doing to keep things going. And despite my pithy remarks, uh, those people are front and center in, uh, in my heart, in all of our hearts here uh, hear. as this goes on.
0: With that, we'll close today. Thanks to our producer, Keegan St. anjme who's the man behind the glass. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. Until then, please visit www.trip.com for more info and subscribe to the Tripwire podcast on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thank you and stay well.
2: All right.